Uh, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the LSE and welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy um, event called Unfathomable Event. Aristotle may have said that those who can't do teach. If that is so, it's quite possible that Nick Royal, who's a professor of literature, teaches about literature, may be a very poor teacher because he can do. Uh, maybe Aristotle should have said some people can do and teach. Here we go. We're here then to uh, launch Nick's novel, Quilt. It's a novel in three parts with a kind of afterword. And you can purchase it outside here tonight and uh, Nick will sign it for you. This book, the novel, tells a story of a son's <coughs> grief and mourning over the loss of the death of his father. It doesn't take too long to get going, that grief. And page 14 says, What has made it possible in the past between us to keep away weeping all these years? That's gone. And there is a lot of grief and efforts at coming to terms with whatever has happened. And then there's slightly mundane stuff. House clearances, funeral arrangements, meeting guests, showing them where to park, a girlfriend arriving. And then there's something else happens, perhaps mainly in the last part, but it's already beginning earlier, a sort of breakdown, which includes the development of a fascination with the animal we saw briefly earlier while we were waiting, the ray, the manta ray, the stingray. That's a very curious kind of fascination. Why should anybody get particularly caught up with rays, one might wonder, when your father's just died. But it does, the son does some pretty extraordinary things, including setting up quite elaborate tanks in his father's house to keep a number of rays um, and a kind of primitive meaningfulness emerges out of that relationship. The ray is also accorded some quite interesting and perhaps also as apocryphal uh, uh, traits, for example, possibly in having launched philosophy in some way, because um, somebody accuses Socrates as kind of questioning as being like the sting of a stingray, numbing, numbing your, numbing your speech. So we have a kind of ray at the origin of philosophy too. That that sense in philosophy that you think you ought to know how to answer a question, but when you try to, nothing, nothing comes. Well, something of the connection between a book of three parts, the quilt, 
and the ray uh, is offered right at the end in the afterwards where the author looks to Chambers' dictionary and it says there, quilt, a bed cover consisting of padding between two outer layers of cloth stitched through all three layers into compartments or channels, any piece of, any material or piece of material so treated. It goes on and it says, quilt is also a verb, of course, meaning to swallow. The principal sense here, however, is as another name, apparently dating from the 18th century, for a manta ray. Well, tonight we're going to have uh, an event in three parts. Only rather um, roughly sewn together. In the first part, Nicholas Royal will uh, talk a little about, about the book himself and read something from it. And then I'm delighted to welcome Amber Jacobs from the Department of Psychosocial Studies at Birkbeck, who will say something of her own. And then I'm going to have a little chance to say something of my own. And then once that quilt is, is done, we'll hand it over to you. Okay, but first then, Nick, if you'd like to take it up. <coughs> I thought I'd just start by saying something about our title, um, and in particular about this word fathom, which I guess we uh, would understand uh, at least in its verb form as to get to the bottom of, to dive into, to penetrate, to see through, or to thoroughly understand. That's um, the OED definition. There is also another OED definition is uh, to take soundings. And perhaps there's a tension between those two senses of fathom. To understand thoroughly and to take soundings, but not necessarily perhaps to understand thoroughly. The word uh, fathom uh, is Old English and um, originally uh, meant to, um, to encircle with extended arms. So the Old Saxon fathoms plural was two arms uh, outstretched, which is of course how we then get to fathom as six feet. The length of two arms, I suppose, of a six-foot person uh, outstretched. No doubt, uh, if we think about this word fathom, uh, one of the first images that comes to mind uh, will be from Shakespeare, from The Tempest, uh, full fathom five, thy father lies of his bones are coral made, those are pearls that were his eyes. Nothing of him that doth fade 
but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. I'm quite curious about uh, Shakespeare's imagination of 30 feet of water, whether, whether that's deep for Shakespeare or how deep that is. Um, but there is also in Shakespeare, uh, I notice a, uh, a, a reference to Fathom's unknown uh, in The Winter's Tale, um, is the image of the profound seas uh, hiding in unknown fathoms. So in order to perhaps sort of move towards the, the notion of unfathomable event, uh, I'd like first of all to quote a philosopher that it perhaps won't come as any surprise to hear me uh, wanting to quote, uh, and that is uh, Jack Derrida. So a couple of uh, quotations from Jacques Derrida uh, about the event. Uh, and the first one is from the book Philosophy in a Time of Terror. And he says, the event is what comes and incoming comes to surprise me, to surprise and suspend comprehension. In other words, there's something about an event that is incomprehensible. There's a sort of there's a uh, uh, incomprehensibility is part of the experience uh, or structure of the event. And the other quotation is from uh, an essay called "My Chances" about chance, and Derrida says unforeseeability conditions the very structure of the event. So again, this, this emphasis on what is not foreseeable uh, or comprehensible. I'm, uh, I feel privileged uh, and honoured to, to have been invited here to, to say something about this novel quilt. Um, and uh, I'm on the verge of uh, not saying any more, really. Um, Except, I suppose, in, in, a, in a rather aphoristic way, I, I'd like to say that uh, it seems to me that the only thing to write about uh, are unfathomable events. Um, and at the same time, uh, in ways to which the writer herself is necessarily blind, any novel uh, worthy of the name uh, is, uh, I think, uh, aspiring or should aspire to be an unfathomable event. What are you eating? What is passing into you? What is it to read? Simon uh, just recalled those three senses of the title word quilt uh, that this novel seeks to explore, the first being the obvious continental kind, um, though oddly when, when you do actually get to a dictionary and how is a quilt defined, it's peculiarly complicated. Um, but the second sense, which, which is one that uh, I'm particularly interested in, to swallow, uh, takes me into the territory of Alice in Wonderland, eat me or drink me. 
And the third sense, as Simon was pointing out, quilt as an 18th century synonym for manta ray uh, is no doubt the most important um, for me in, in relation to this text. So there are um, two particular figures or versions of the unfathomable in the context of quilt, which I thought I'd just touch on. Um, and one is the death of the father. Uh, and I suppose the, the, the first and perhaps primary way in which I'd like to um, illustrate the, the, the notion of the death of the father is from Freud uh, and from the interpretation of dreams. And in the preface to the second edition uh, of the interpretation of dreams, in 1908, that's to say eight years after the first edition, it's only then, eight years after publishing the book, that Freud acknowledges in that preface uh, that this book, The Interpretation of, the, of, of Dreams, was, I quote, my reaction to my father's death. That is to say, to the most important event, the most poignant loss of a man's life. The um, novel uh, is uh, trying to articulate and uh, describe that event uh, and doing so, uh, at least in the first instance, in terms of something that the father says. Uh, the, father, the father might have said, I'm dying. I'm about to die. But he doesn't, he says, these things happen from time to time. Uh, and there is a phrase which occurs in, in relation to that uh, statement, uh, unfathomable distance, uh, which people may want to um, respond to or, or, or ask about. The second uh, sense of, of fathom, I suppose, that I'm interested in is, is the fact that fathom is human. Uh, and I would therefore think of, of fathoms as, uh, if you like, philologically, conceptually, linked to a certain kind of anthropocentrism. And uh, one of the things that this novel is interested in trying to explore is, I suppose, na the, the non-anthropocentric. Something uh, close in many ways to the sort of idea that's recently been described by uh, the critic and theorist Timothy Morton in a book called The Ecological Thought. So, a, a, a kind of an attempt to think about uh, what I, th I suppose has been called deep ecology, but maybe uh, with a view to the idea that deep ecology isn't deep at all, that deep is a misleading metaphor for thinking about um, what happens, what might be thought under that heading. So uh, the, the novel is concerned with deep time, or rather the unfathomable figure of that name, with the fact that we come from the sea, with the absolutely alien strangeness of marine life, uh, in particular rays, and above all, 
the quilt or manta wrap. And I'm, I'm just going to illustrate uh, one of these versions of, of our topic by reading uh, something from the novel. And uh, this will take me, I think, uh, nine minutes or so, and then I'm going to sit down and leave you alone. Don't you listen to Amber and Simon. So I'm, I'm going to read from the beginning, um, and... Um, then I'm going to stop. In the middle of the night, the phone rings over and over, but I don't hear it. First it is the hospital, then the police. These things happen from time to time, my father says. He is lying on the bed, his single bed alongside the other which still made up was my mother's dying two years earlier and the covers are off and I am trying to get him up and dressed ready for hospital but I'm weeping. Tears are streaming down my face making it difficult to see. Unenvisaged, embarrassing. Until now I have managed to remain quite calm like him. I discussed the case over the phone with the doctor and agreed the best thing would be to get him into hospital where they could make him more comfortable. If it's possible to persuade your dad, see what you can do. I know old folk don't necessarily want to shift. And for all the antiquarian power of his habits, he could always amaze me, turn out to have been thinking or not entirely elsewhere, for years impossible to get him to go somewhere, come out for a drink, walk by the sea, drive down the country lanes over the hills. I didn't expect him to agree, but he did without the faintest remonstrance. Yes, take me to the hospital. He's lying on the bed and he is my flesh. So simple, his body mine, and so difficult, so complicated, he'll say shortly, in a portmanteau coming apart at the seams, just when it would have become, to my mind, most straightforward, so deluded. Give up the thought of the sentence, he seems to tell me, and I am in his grip, he mine, here and from now on. I prop him up, help him sit, help him remove his bedclothes and get him dressed. Stertorous is the wrong word, but hangs in the air, a signpost to how the most ordinary thing, getting dressed, becomes impracticable, fateful, tangled up with words and images from a song or book, the grotesque persnicketiness of Edgar Allan Poe, the stertorous breathing of Monsieur Valdemar, figure of impossible, resuscitated putrefaction. It hangs in the air like a silent spy plane, shadow show of gallows. That is where living backwards begins. To pronounce dead is to murder, he wrote. All the time the other bed, by her, my father and I all the time aware that we do not exchange a syllable, unoccupied. Yesterday I called the doctor in. He asked my father if it would be possible to go upstairs so that he could examine him on the bed, and we all went up together, one by one, three bears, me at the back, the doctor in the middle, each of us holding on to the handrail as we went, the doctor remarking with admiration on its crafting, smooth but knotty trunk of a young pine fallen in the garden years ago, meticulously bolted to the stairway wall by my father. Solid silver, yes, Silver, silvam, silvai, the way words twinkle to others' uses, other to her, solid flesh, 
melting into dew, slivering into you. My father makes to lie down on his bed, but the doctor asks him to lie down on the other bed because it is closer to the window and he'll be able to see better. My father is nonplussed. Looking over it, he says, but that was my wife's bed. My wife, he says, pronouncing the words very carefully. His speech become fuzzy, especially in the preceding few days, and he strives to overcome it. I can hear the struggle. At innumerable moments in the past, he has referred to her as me wife, in deliberate loving lapse of propriety. That was me wife's bed. But he doesn't venture it now. We seem to be embarked on some new phase of language. For some days there has been an eerie formality, an explicitness, almost disembodied, in referring to his anatomy and bodily functions, urinating, retraction of the penis, excreting liquid stools, incontinence, as if this new emphasis on the proper heralds some strange homecoming, the rending mystery of my father. Is there fear and confusion, or only loving respect, even awe, when he objects, as if to say, but I cannot lie down there, that was my wife's bed. Yet the doctor insists on that bed, it is closer to the window, he says, he'll be able to see better, to see, to see, what is it, magically thinking, my father complies. But now it is today, tw nearly 24 hours later, and we say nothing about the other bed, unoccupied, constantly in our minds. No, not stertorous, rather wheezeful, softer, gulping, an immeasurably beautiful, strange, ancient fish, glopping, glooping, groping, grasping, rasping for air, at air, sitting up, slowly, so slowly to get dressed, article by article, until the socks. I am dressing my father for the first time in my life, his, due to him, melting to me all his body mine, mining me, me father. A miner, yes, that thought is never far away. Underground, he carries it within him. For three years during the Second World War, a coal miner, day after day, deep down in the dark, and apparently relishing it. Sheer subterranean strength, coming up for air at the end of the day, face blackened, hot shower, then tea at his digs, a couple of pints at the local and bed, then before dawn, down again into the earth. Mole of my life. It's as I help him dress now, I have this searing sensation, smell and feel and look of his body mine, mined out, to have and to hold, every article exhausting, and he has to rest, catch or fall back, seeking breath, respite, resources from somewhere unrecognisable. He insists on a vest, shirt and two pullovers, even though it is almost the end of July, a hot summer's day. We get to the socks. He is lying down and his feet calloused, alien corn swollen, one of them worryingly red, a rash that runs up over his right foot to above the ankle. I haven't been aware of it till now, something else to be looked at in the hospital. I inch on the little soft grey cotton socks for him and the tears begin trickling down my cheeks. I try to conceal this, it is not the place for crying, not in the presence of my father, he does not weep. He whom, yes, incredibly, only now for the first time it flashes, I have never seen weep, and he's evidently not about to start now. But I'm blinded. The tears are pouring out of my face. Why merely this word, tears or teardrops, but no others, like Eskimo snow lexings? Why not a new language, invented every time? What's pouring out of my face has never happened before. 
I've succeeded in getting him dressed and can begin to negotiate the business of getting him downstairs and out to the car and drive him to the hospital, but I cannot see anything with all this streaming. I have to tell him. I have to bring myself under control. The thought steadies me. I love you, Dad, I say, now standing up between his bed and hers, holding him by the hand. I love you too, mate, he says, and the tears flow from me with renewed force, impossible to restrain, strain, staining tears. My father says, don't worry, it's all right. Or oh, he doesn't, know, not that exactly. The precise words are delivered as if from such an unfathomable distance I hardly recognise them. These things happen from time to time.
This book allowed for me a glimpse of an alternative mode of being, organised around this profound figure of the ray in the ocean. In a way, the affect of the writing circumvents categories like death, mourning, loss, love and language via the ray. In some senses, the book does away with those categories. For me, the ray is not a metaphor, it's not a motif or a symbol. It's rather a mode of being, which, which the novel allows me to glimpse. So through the ray in Quilt, we enter into a different symbolic economy that's functioning according to different structures than that of the binary system that characterises dominant Western thought. We can talk about that later, because people may not think it does dominate or characterise Western thought. But this book, for me, or the ray itself, allows me to glimpse this yet-to-be mode of being. So the ray is a mode of being, a model of a yet-to-be alternative symbolic economy. Before I go into what that mode of being that the book opens up for me actually is, I want to go back to the book. So there's a, it's on page um, 32. I'm sorry if it's out of context in the rest of the book, but this is going on from the ray as a mode of being. So I'm quoting now, but the ray is a problem, insuperably so, or rather it is an aporia. The ray wrecks language. The revolutionary ray. You reach for words. You reparate. You dream of a new vocabulary, a new reality, or it dreams you. So it is this revolutionary ray that wrecks language and dreams new languages and realities that I take profoundly from this, this novel. In my own research, researchers and, and my long endeavour to theorise alternative modes of knowing, alternative modes of being outside of Western metaphysics or binarism or patriarchies, whatever you want to call them. In those researches, I also have been led to the sea. Marcel Détienne and Jean-Paul Vernant, two French structural anthropologists, in their book Cunning Intelligence, draws attention to what they see as a radically marginalised ancient Greek mode of intelligence called Metis. Metis was hated by Plato and written out of or forgotten from the history of philosophy, so say Vernant and Detienne. Metis is a mode of being, a mode of knowing, linked to the ruses of the sea and its creatures. Among the creatures that this concept metis apparently emerged from in ancient Greek philosophy was the ray was one of them. The ray, the cuttlefish, the squid and the octopus. Going back to ancient treatises of fishing, Vernat and Detienne, and this was written in the 70s, I think 1977 or something, produce a stunning collage or description of this alternative mode of being this ancient Greek philosophical concept that hovers as a shadow on Western philosophy called metis. Metis is a form of cunning, a mode of being that is mutable, shifting, polymorphous, pliable, oblique, slippery, many-faceted, many-coloured, shimmering. The octopus, 
the ray that defy all binaries of inside, outside, up, down, top and bottom. The octopus that moves sideways, enigmatic creatures that have neither front nor rear, eyes in the front, mouth behind, elusive and deceptive, merging to the stone to which it clings, imitating the colour of the thing that it approaches. The dark cloud, the impenetrable night of the ink cloud of the cuttlefish, defines the essential features of Metis that these sea creatures possess. Bernat and Detienne's book, Cunning Intelligence, is a collection of examples of Metis, this mode of being from ancient treatises on fishing. It's a book that describes the properties and tactics of the ray, the octopus, the squid, with a desire to demonstrate that these creatures in ancient Greek culture represented an alternative epistemological system that has been overshadowed or buried by platonic thought. Now, I've been working with this, this, this book for a long time and have been mourning the fact that it's out of print, it's a relic, it's becoming obsolete and, es and, and considered too esoteric. And recently, in an attempt to try and approach publishers to reprint it, they came back saying it's too esoteric. No one's going to want to hear about that. It's, there's no money in it, and therefore it's not being. It is out of print, and I've been trying to disseminate Metis in my own work. However, Nick's book appears. The Ray appears again at this moment, where the Metis book that tells the story of the revolutionary potential of the Ray, the octopus, as a new reality. As, as that sinks further down into the depths of oblivion, his, his, his book comes out and in some way there's an amazing continuity for that. In some ways I see Quilt as a kind of contemporary, um, you know, un unwittingly carrying on a kind of thread of, of, of unfathomable thought actually that, that I mean obviously in, in no kind of rational way but for me that, that Metis dies with one book and is considered too esoteric and comes alive with another in a diff very different mode we move from the octopus to the ray, and the alternative mode of being still continues to live. So in the book, the ray, if the ray is aporia, which is what was said in that quote, if the ray is the unfathomable, then that navel, that blind spot, that unplumbable point, is rescued from both romantic despair and or the sublime. And I think that's really, really important, that the, um, that the unfathomable and the navel and that which cannot ever be known is taken away from that binary of either poeticised, romanticised and made sublime or being linked to a kind of nihilistic, romantic despair. Once the unfathomable gets attached to the ray, that binary is circumvented and overturned and the unfathomable, along with the ray, becomes a radical movement Hence, the revolutionary ray. I want to come back to the navel now. Freud didn't call that unfathomable, unplumbable point that reaches the unknowability, that dark abyss and void, a navel as a coincidence. The navel is a scar that marks the relation to the maternal body. The navel is that scar that acknowledges the connection to the maternal first home that we are barred access to forever. That aporia, that blind spot that is marked on our very bodies.
The unfathomable then, as navel, oddly takes us back to the maternal, but this is the book about the death of a father. And what was extraordinary for me is that whilst this is a, an extremely moving book about the death of a father, about loss, mourning, all of those categories which I've said I can't talk about, the only way in which I can talk about it is through the ray as opening up a possible revolutionary moment of thinking beyond binarism, beyond the structures that, that, that organise our notions of reality. But somehow, that unfathomable, and it's linked to the navel, brings the maternal somehow hovering like the ray at the bottom of the sea, shimmering or somehow not quite buried. The, the ray, the revolutionary ray then, lurks and rises and brings with it another death or another movement or another mode in the text that speaks of the navel. So the mother silently goes in and out of focus, not quite buried like the ray. So, so somehow, for me, oddly, I feel um, that, that the ray opens up a different mode of being, which goes to the unplumbable point of the navel and brings the mother into the picture in a really unsettling way. I mean, it's kind of, it, it really is what, what I did get from it. And I thought, how can I be talking about the, the maternal when this book is so clearly about the loss of a father? But there is something lurking there. And, and really, I take from, from the book this opening to another revolutionary moment. But that's, that's my own. I'm going to talk a little bit about Freud too. You know, I think he's one of the, the constants in here. I, I almost never talk about Freud, and I'm hardly going to talk about him. But I'm mainly going to talk about another thinker of the limits of the old Enlightenment, Martin Heidegger. And um, I'm also going to say something about animals at the end anyway, and also about death. So there's some of the stitching around what the others have been talking about. The main stitch will come very quickly here. When I tell you that I'm going to talk a little bit about um, Heidegger's inaugural lecture as professor of philosophy at the University of Freiburg in 1929. He was very young, he was taking over Husserl's chair it was a huge moment for him, and he gave his inaugural lecture to the community of scientists in that German sense of scientists, which is the um, <coughs> scholars in which, whatever area, domain of research. And he asked this gathered community of scientists the following question. What is happening to us he asks, in the grounds of our existence, when science becomes <coughs> our passion. The fathomable, one might say, what happens when the fathomable becomes our passion? Now Heidegger didn't want on that occasion to leave his audience in any kind of comfort or ease with their typical self-understanding of themselves as 
scientific workers. Science, he said, its leadership in the whole of mankind was, he said, towards the end of the lecture, proper but limited. The idea of man as a rational animal or the animal that among whose ways of behaving includes pursuing science, that's not going to be for him the highest or most fundamental understanding of, of the who that we are. And in his lecture he tried to elucidate a deeper understanding by engaging with a theme that he thought couldn't be exclusively an issue for scientific inquiry. So he wanted to inquire about something beyond the limits of science. So at the beginning of his lecture, there's this calling into question or interruption or displacement of the authority of the scientific community and its worldview. And the ambition was to show the legitimacy of a strictly non-scientific inquiry inquiry which today I'm calling an inquiry into the unfathomable but I don't think I'm forcing it. First of all though what would be the subject matter of a properly scientific inquiry so in, inside the limits as it were. Well the scientist Heidegger suggests he, he ventriloquizes the scientist uh, but I think in a rather faithful way sci the scientist is concerned with everything that is everything that is. And beyond that, nothing. It's concerned with beings only and nothing else. Heidegger repeats this kind of point of the scientist's concern with everything that is and beyond that, nothing, six times in order to set up a most perplexing question. He asked, well, what about this nothing then? <coughs> How does it go for the nothing? That is to say, that which science doesn't deal. It deals with this and not that. It deals with what is and nothing else. And beyond that, nothing. Well, what about the nothing then? What about that which is beyond what you deal with? Might that become a genuine concern for us? And Heidegger will answer positively. There is a certain kind of experience that human beings can undergo, what he calls a fundamental mood, which he calls angst, anxiety. And in angst, we experience something he calls the nothing. And he says that this isn't the kind of wild way of talking. He thinks that there's a kind of attestation for this idea, not only in the scientist who says beyond that nothing, so there's a kind of something which is the nothing that the scientist isn't concerned with, but even in our everyday lives, uh, Heidegger says, for example, in the lucid vision sustained by fresh remembrance, we say that that in the face of which and for which we were anxious was properly nothing. When anxiety has subsided, in our everyday ways of talking, we sometimes say, oh, it was really nothing. What were you anxious about? Oh, it's so nothing. And Heidegger takes this very seriously. Because he thinks that that 
which that in the face of which anxiety is anxious is literally nothing in the world no being no thing no entity in the world which might be the object of your concern and your anxiety nothing within the world but this nothing within the world that you're anxious about is not these things totally nothing the nothing here is a, he says, a primordial something. He puts it like this. Being in the world is that in the face of which anxiety is anxious. So nothing in the world, but having being in the world, being in the world at all, is that in the face of which one is anxious. But Heidegger is defined a finite being as having being in the world as its basic condition. So in anxiety, we, what he calls Dasein, the one that is there, is brought face to face with itself. We are ourselves the what of the anxiety that we're anxious about. But but not as an entity in the world, not as a kind of corporeal subject, as it were, or a, uh, a body, but in our being. So what we're brought before in anxiety is ourselves qua a finite existing being that has being in the world as its basic state, what Heidegger calls Dasein. In anxiety, you are confronted with, a f- with finite existence as such, but this isn't something about which you're confronted with as, as something you've never, as it were, come across. It's something with which you're already familiar because you are it. So he talks about you having a familiarity with that with which you're anxious. You already have some kind of familiarity with being and with being in the world. And this familiarity, he says, is constitutive for Dasein. Your being is being familiar with your own being in the world. What we're familiar with here, that which we're anxious about when we're anxious, is this primordial something which science, he says, and in our everyday talk, he says, we grasp as nothing. It's really nothing. Then this nothing is not simply nothing. It's nothing other than what we're familiar with in our familiarity with our own being. So Heidegger does this talk about the nothing, which I've summarised rather crudely and rapidly now. He gives time to nothing in a way that very few philosophers do. And in the 20th century, very few philosophers would get away with it. Heidegger's German contemporary, Rudolf Carnap, famously claimed that such talk, and using Heidegger as his example, was simply and strictly nonsensical. There's a very deep contrast between these two great German thinkers, Carnap, who thinks that this talk of the nothing is nonsense, and Heidegger, who thinks that this talk of the nothing is fundamental. And Heidegger's lecture makes propaganda for his alternative. 
this is very clear at the closing of the lecture where he says or urges us to liberate ourselves from those idols that's got some everyone has and to which they are wont to go cringing and I think the idols that Heidegger has in mind there are of the sort that Sartre later called the great explanatory idols of our epoch he listed them as heredity, education environment, physiological constitution these are all ways of giving scientific or naturalistic explanations of every aspect of human existence and so Heidegger's idol hammering aims to open up a path distinct from the kind of scientific philosophy envisaged by Heidegger. Carnap thought, Carnap thought that we could lay Heidegger to rest, as it were, uh, by declaring in a logical analysis of language which would show that all this talk was nonsense. And yet at that very moment the scene of Carnap combating this Heideggerian effort, this scene of conflict, which wasn't just one of sort of measured argument between uh, thinkers respectful of the other's position and so on, this is, was uh, a kind of battle of the giants, as it were, in German philosophy in that scene between the scientific philosopher on the one hand and the existentialist on the other, that scene begins to speak for Heidegger's own pointed challenge to Carnap's sense of the objectivity and lofty impartiality, impartiality of his scientific method. For the passionate will to oppose the Heideggerian challenge that we get from Carnap is, I think, perhaps an unwitting acknowledgement of Heidegger's denial that the logical function of negation is the sole or even leading form of nihilative behaviour. As Heidegger puts it, unyielding antagonism, stinging rebuke, have a more abysmal source than the measured negation of thought. I want to briefly consider this antagonism incarnate as the expression of love of science. And I want to suggest we could think of this unyielding antagonism as a kind of work of mourning. Not some crazy mourning at the death of Heidegger, but a mourning for the death of science, but not because it has died but out of a kind of knowledge of its precariousness, out of the knowledge that, for example, in a clash of cultures or of civilizations, it can be shattered and die. Now that idea comes to the fore in an essay by Freud called On Transience. And he begins, Freud begins his little essay by recalling a summer walk with two friends where he tried to get them to see that transience doesn't diminish the loveliness or worth that we find in finite things. He says beautifully, a flower that blossoms only for a single night does not seem to us on that account less lovely. 
And this seemed indisputable to him, and yet he noticed that in his view, that his view made no impression on his two friends. His reading of this failure on their part runs like this. What spoilt their enjoyment of beauty must have been a revolt in their minds against mourning. The idea that all this beauty was transient was giving these two sensitive minds a foretaste of mourning over its decease. And since the mind instinctively recoils from anything that is painful, they felt their enjoyment of beauty interfered with by thoughts of its transience. And he gives a further example, particularly telling for me. My conversation with these friends took place in the summer before the war. First of all. A year later, the war broke out and robbed the world of its beauty. It destroyed not only the beauty of the countryside, but it also shattered our pride in the achievements of our civilization. It tarnished the lofty impartiality of science. It robbed us of very much that we had loved and showed us how ephemeral were many things we had regarded as changeless. But have those possessions which we have now lost really ceased to have any worth for us because they have proved so perishable and so unresistant. That's the end of the quote. So the transience of the riches of civilization does not, for Freud, diminish their worth. For Freud, the only thing that would have diminished the robust sense of worth experienced before the war would have been an anticipation of the mourning that would occur if it was gone. And so it's only because it was not anticipated that their sense of the lofty impartiality of science was not already tarnished. And yet, can one really suppose that pride in our civilization is not already informed by what he calls a foretaste of mourning over its decease? Indeed, isn't the underlying logic of his own argument that an appreciation of the world of beauty and worth is wrought on the consciousness that it might be robbed from us. Isn't Freud's insistence that it's incomprehensible that the transience of beauty might interfere with our joy in it, shouldn't that be regarded as an affirmation that the experience of worth is always, as it were, a work of mourning before the fact? Like that experience that the son has with the father before the tears, that those, that experience is, as it were, continuous with the tears that arrive at the, uh, at the moment of death, or coming up to death. Now that thought may be very nascent in Freud, of an idea of mourning before the fact of death, as that love is itself, as it were, uh, the love of the thing that you know will die. And so it is itself a work of mourning. Um, that, that thought may be very nascent in Freud, but it's a, a central one from, for one of Heidegger's most avid readers, who we've already, already heard from this evening, Jack Derrida, who said, I would love to write a short treatise on love of ruins. What else is there to love, anyway? One cannot love a monument, a work of architecture, an institution as such, 
except in the experience of its precarious fragility. It hasn't always been there, it will not always be there, it is finite. And for this very reason I love it as mortal through its birth and its death, through the ghost or the silhouette of its ruin, of my own, which it already is or already prefigures. How can we love except in this finitude? <coughs> I want to say a final word about the stage of existence sketched here and to suggest with Derrida that the passion for science that we see in Karnak is also a discourse of love and death. Love here is inseparable from a work of mourning, out of which, before the fact, there is this fierce pride in the pursuit of something one knows can, in some devastation, decease. To be sure, mourning here wouldn't be mourning in an ordinary sense, not mourning after the fact of death. Rather, it's mourning as the general structure of experience of every finite existence. And this transforms our thinking of what is disclosed by Heideggerian anxiety. In Heidegger, anxiety is specified as the structure of finite existence as being in the world, which he thinks of as essentially a being towards death. Familiarity with existence is an understanding of finitude. In Heidegger, however, however the death at issue is always my death. The finite existence at issue is always mine. In Derrida's work, on the other hand, there's an attempt to acknowledge that, as it were, our understanding of my death, my familiarity with my finitude, is strictly inseparable from a relation to the death of the other. Indeed, conceivable only where the death of the other is first. Always first. Indeed, including, he says, the death of the other animal, or the animal other. And if one's own understanding of one's own finitude passes through or is prefigured by this relation to the loss of the other, then we should come to see that the fundamental mood of anxiety as essentially being towards death is always already inflected as a work of mourning before the fact. So that our relation to the world is therefore always already caught up in what Derrida calls here the ghost or silhouette of its ruin. An unfathomably haunting conclusion. Thank you. Right. Um, about 25 minutes, uh, which we can either just ask Nick to read more or you can um, ask a question, or, or whatever you want to do, really. Yes, please. Yeah. My question would be that uh, when a work of literature becomes a work of philosophy, because, as I see it, Philosophy aims to demystify, while literature can demystify, 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 it can simply engage and entertain. So, yeah, if you like, it's for the right of this. 
when a book Thank you. Nick, please say that. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Um, <clears throat> I suspect Simon will give a more interesting response to this question than, than I will. Um, but I suppose my um, immediate thought would be that um, the, kind of the kind of literature that I'm interested in or the kind of way of thinking about literature um, that um, I find uh, compelling and, and um, impassioning or, or whatever is um, inextricably philosophical. I, I don't have a, a, an experience of, well, this is literature over there and, and this is philosophy over here, not, not to suggest that there aren't important uh, distinctions between uh, certain kinds of discourse, certain questions of, of genre and pedagogical considerations, but um, for me, uh, a literary work can be just as philosophical as, as any philosophical work, um, and vice versa. I don't, I don't think of philosophical writing as being uh, strictly um, cut off from uh, literary writing either. I, I uh, uh, would sort of simply add that um, one might think in terms of the relationship between what we call philosophy as if we could understand it as one thing over here and what we call literature as if we could understand it over here, there are about three standard configurations. One is philosophy in literature. So you'd have a work of literature which would stage a bit of philosophy. So you might have a philosopher as one of the characters and they might give a lecture, which might just be a bit of philosophy in the, in the work of literature. Um, or you might, as it were, point in the other direction, have philosophy of literature where somebody who calls themselves a philosopher is going to try to tell you what literature is, which will both resist. <laughs> okay. Philosophy of literature. But then there's this third thing, which I think is the most interesting because it complicates all of this positioning, is philosophical literature, where the generic distinctions aren't... Um, uh, can't be held apart anymore, where the, where the work of the work of literature is itself a philosophical um, engagement. Probably one of the most famous of these, certainly in the 20th century, would be Sartre's Nausea, where it, it would be wrong to think that it's a philosopher talking about literature, it would be wrong to think it's just a, a work of literature with bits of philosophy in it, but it seems itself to be a philosophical work, although deeply literary. I mean, through and through, as it were, literally. Uh, I don't think there's a way of um, sa saying what makes it philosophical, except for perhaps the thing that you mentioned, that um, philosophy has a relation to clarity, or clarification, you demystification. Um, now, that, there are lots of ways in which one can engage with that. Um, effort 
to become clear because it might mean coming to see that a certain kind of clarity, a, a, a one, for example, in which you can end up with philosophy over here and literature over there, is impossible. You know, that you, you know, different ways of, in, kinds of enlightenment. But I, I would want to say that uh, uh, philosophy, philosophical questioning, has been inseparable from the moment the stingray hit the mouth as it were, and made you numb, and knowing, not knowing what to say, you were benumbed, dumbfounded, unable to speak, this kind of profound difficulty of that one might call unclarity or uh, um, empuzzlement over something with which you should be familiar. But the philosophy is sort of inseparable from that, and so it's when literature belongs to that uh, dimension of clarity. Yeah. I just add that um, I think it's crucial for us to think of philosophy uh, as a kind of literature and that funnily enough I don't see philosophy as something which should be mystified. I think in some ways it, it does precisely the opposite. It well, every, every philosophy. All philosophy. Well I, <laughs> I think that as a, as a category because we're talking about philosophy and literature and that in some senses that the, you could talk about the, the unconscious of philosophy being literature. We need to use these categories in, in the, these ways. But that ideologically, we need to yeah, deconstruct the boundaries, but also seeing philosophy as a, a body of literature or, or a body of knowledge and it is a way to demystify philosophy and, and disrupt those boundaries. <laughs> So I think it's an ideological kind of imperative to see philosophy as a kind of literature, or as a kind of fiction, in the same way that psychoanalysis has that similar relationship with literature. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned deep ecology, and you, you suggested that it's that what happens under that title is not genuinely deep. And from it, it, it's a while since I read any deep ecology, but my own memories of it struck or that it, that, that it struck me as a bit shallow. So I'm wondering, can can you elaborate what you mean when you say that deep deep ecology, when you suggest that it's not genuinely deep, can you elaborate that? Um, yeah, I don't know what e deep ecology you were reading that you found shallow. Um, but yeah, um, I think I, I mean I, I wasn't wanting to suggest that deep ecology was not genuinely deep. That wasn't quite my point. It was more about the way in which this term deep ecology seems to become um, precisely a kind of categorization and a way of. Um, of classifying and putting a certain sort of thinking over there, uh, instead of maybe doing the sort of thing that Timothy Morton is, I think, trying to do in his in his work, Ecology Without Nature and, and the Ecological Thought. That's to say, um, trying to get away from a, a vocabulary or a metaphorics of depth and or shallow 
uh, and trying to think about something more like what he calls the mesh, um, or what he also calls dark ecology, I suppose, which which is um, uh, well, I I don't. This isn't my joke. This isn't my pun, but um, it's the fine mesh we're in. Um, so it, it, it's it's a way of trying to sort of um, I suppose get ecology into thinking, um, getting away from precisely that sort of let, let's bracket it off and and, and, and the, the really kind of far out people are the deep ecologists. So that if, if that can you can you say a little bit in that connection of what you called a certain anthropocentrism that this might contrast with? What, what, what's the this contrast position of the anthropocentric? I'm not sure it's a contrast, um, but I I guess um, I mean I'm, I'm aware that there are certain people here who have a um, uh, a great interest in uh, the question of non-human animals. Um, uh, Lynn. Um, uh, and, and who probably have more articulate things to say on this front than I do, but um, I, I guess it's the it, it's the idea of um, of ways of thinking which I mean the, the, if I'm thinking about the sort of um, more critical philosophical work that I've been trying to do recently, uh, it would be trying to think about the concept of environment uh, in a way that. Um, that doesn't, as the word environment suggests, uh, entail something that environs the human. Um, so, you know, this is in, in many ways about non-human animals, but it's not only about non-human animals. Lynn, do you want to? I will, actually. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether it will be articulate, but I was, of course, thinking about um, questions to do with movement, um, not least because of the, the, the name of your other imminent publication, Veering, um, and the image on, on that book cover uh, of a turtle swimming. But I, I was, it's not exactly a question. Um, something to do with uh, environment. Uh, with the mole and the mire and the displacements of earth in the darkness uh, and then hearing of the manta ray here uh, and the displacements of water and something about the nature of that, that, that movement in its relationship with the unfathomable that, that takes away from um, an opposition between the knowable and, and its direct opposite um, that, that it enables um, a, a shifting kind of movement in which maybe something is fathomed, but who fathoms it mm. is not predicted. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I take that as a as a remark rather than a question. <laughs> uh, very Quite a few questions coming in. Let's see, we'll start there and there. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I've been trying to frame this in questions, so I think I've just I'd be interested in your comments. Um, I thought that, um, especially when you were talking, Simon, about Heidegger and um, that which creates angst in us is in that intimate relationship with that which we are most 
Um, and the, the idea of the, the uncanny, both in, in Freud as well. Um, and the idea that, you know, in, in that if life is ultimately the ultimate unfathomable event, something un, um, unknowable at the root of every individual existence, um, and that, that that then makes life in its wholeness uncanny um, and creates, I think, in people way, a moving away. And so that all human progress, as it were, is, is, is a moving away from and running away from that which is so unsettling. Um, and for, for example, the, the bivalent nature of Western thought that everything must be or not be, it must be this or, or that, um, it, it in, indicates that in people, that, that science uh, and religion and philosophy itself are all the product of an inability or um, uh, or an unwillingness to accept the unfathomable nature of life and explore life in that way that we want to create to make every to make life not feel like that. So therefore, we plow ourselves into saying what is and what isn't and creating a reality for ourselves. Um, so yeah, just thoughts on that. I, I, I think that's a, a very good gloss, actually, on, on a kind of Heideggerian view of this, which, I, which I'm very sympathetic, which is that this idea that that which is so unsettling, which is uh, irreducibly uncanny, as it were, there's no getting over the uncanniness, ultimately, is, is this unfathomable event that is being in the world, your, your being there, any, any other ones being there. And that our tendency is to flee into canniness, which I was reminded is a, is a phrase that uh, Nick cites from uh, Tony Blair after 7-7, saying that British people are too canny to something. Everyone is canny enough to know what these people try to do. Right. And, and this kind of this movement into the canny as, as somewhere where you can try and hold yourself from the uncanny. And Heidegger's big thing was that you know, we are the uncanniest animal. That was his anthropocentrism, as it were. We are the un and, and that the task of philosophy, because he thought there was one, <laughs> um, would be um, holding yourself into the uncanny and being the most uncanny, the most uncanny, that would be the sort of thing. I, I, I like what you're saying. I, I, like, I, I do think there's something tremendous in thinking about one's own life as an unfathomable event. Perhaps just add, I mean, a, 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 a remark by Derrida, which which is closely bound up with the, with the Heideggerian um, conception of things, I think, um, somebody asked him in, in, in an interview at some point, you know, well, uh, what about the uncanny, what, you know, aren't, aren't you just sort of saying, well, let's all just, you know, seek out uncanniness, um, and he's very, um, very clear and firm about this, he's too frightened of it, you know, the uncanny is madness, uh, and uh, he, he insists, and I think it's a very helpful kind of remark that, that one has to regulate an economy uh, in relation to the uncanny. Mm. Um, it's not 
simply a question of kind of binding yourself hand and foot uh, and passing yourself over to you. It's up to talk about organising a response to mm. what you can't ultimately get a, I don't know how you put it at the beginning, the, uh, the fully understanding of it. Yeah. But nevertheless, the, the, without thoroughly understanding that you still sort of have to take up the task of, of attempting it. I think um, it's when the fleeing from the unfathomable fails, which it does in every moment, even when we flee into these so-called, you know, religious history, you know, it's, it's the failure of that fleeing that is what makes life interesting. And I, I actually think that every moment of fleeing from the unfathomable, there is failure in every moment, and that it seeps in all the time. Okay, good. One minute, and then we're down here, and then back up. Thank you. Just a, a quick comment on uh, what you were saying about Freud's uh, fear of the young canyon, which he was in um, several instances sort of ready to confess, and in a, in a readiness that almost seems a bit of, of a defense in, in some ways. I was reminded of uh, uh, in one of his letters saying to, uh, I can't remember if it was Jung or someone, someone else in the circle, of saying, well, the reason that we have to cling so tightly to the sex theory is to stave off the, what he called the black tide occultism, which might, might be threatening. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that in the last question, the uncanny kept coming up, because um, I, I'd be really embarrassed if I'm wrong, but Nicholas, you had a book called The Uncanny that I read it a number of years ago. And, uh, and uh, I, it struck me at the time as being a, a work of philosophical literature in a lot of ways that touched on um, the figure of the corpse and hypnotism and so on and so forth. And when I, I heard you reading tonight, and the, the figure of Sir Valdemar came into um, a scene that had uh, some sort of um, a pathos of things, but suddenly literature seemed to be interjected in a very sort of almost contaminating um, sort of literature. And, I was, and it seemed that, that you opened out onto Poe through this word stertorous. I was trying to kind of follow the joins there. And so I guess uh, maybe my question is, is not so much a yes or no question, but maybe a prompt for you to invite, invite you to expand on that a little bit. Are you conscious of that? I, I love literature. Um, I love philosophy too, but I, I, I spend a lot of my time um, teaching literature. And, and I, I find, for better or worse, my my head tends to be full of other people's words. Um, and uh, I'm not sure, actually, I couldn't say whether it was stertorous or whether it was putrefaction, because that's, that's clearly another <coughs> how word um, uh, that, that I had in mind. I, I, really, I, I really don't know. Um, but. I mean, to, to, to give a, perhaps a, a response that is a, at least obliquely, uh, perhaps, apropos, um, I think one finds uh, that word putrefaction. I mean, if I think about the word putrefaction, I, I think of um, I think of Pope, but I also think of 
so you work with Jeffrey Bennington uh, writing about sovereignty, sovereignty and, and putrefaction of sovereignty. Um, and I think about um, J.G. Ballard, um, a short story by Ballard called The Drowned Giant. Um, I don't know if anybody knows that short story. Uh, I think one of the most beautiful, moving uh, short stories written um, in, in the last 60 years or so in English, um, which has this, this reference to the, the undisguisable signature of putrefaction. Um, in relation to the body of this drowned giant. And no doubt Ballard is thinking about Poe there too, but um, I suppose it, 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 it's, I'm, I'm driven by a fascination with the way that words twinkle to others' uses, you know, and that and the, and the words aren't our own. Not mine, not Poe's. It's one for you, Simon. I think I might have dropped a stitch between the beginning and the end of your um, piece. Mm -hmm. But could you just help me with the connection again between the idea of nothing at the beginning and uh, the idea of the end of transient? <coughs> my crude assimilation was that transient leads to nothing, but I'm sure you meant something much, much further than that. What, what I wanted to, <coughs> to get the shift between, ultimately, was between anxiety and mourning. And anxiety is Heidegger's way of thematizing one's own relation to finitude, to one's own finitude, to one's own being towards death. But one can't be and not know one is mortal. One can't be the kind of thing that we are and not have being towards death as part of the structure of your whole being. So it saturates your whole being. So death isn't something that stands, as it were, beyond the space of your life, which would be a limit, and you live the life bit now, and the death bit would be relate to something that's going to happen. No, for Heidegger, death is a possibility that. Um, is always possible for me. It's sort of a possibility I can't ever outstrip or get beyond. But it's always for him the possibility of my death. And anxiety then, which is anxious about nothing in the world, but is anxious about being in the world as a finite being, is anxious about the, the nothing of one's own end. Right? But in Derrida, this whole thing gets re- gets turned, turned it away on its head, away from my death, towards the death of the other. But the death of the other doesn't become, as it were, something much more uh, fathomable. Um, not at all. But um, instead of, as it were, starting with me and my death, we begin with the death of the other. And that this comes out equally in something which one can describe as structural to the existence, namely that it's a, a structure of mourning, always in advance, mourning, a work of mourning. Thanks. Uh, there's one there and then one there, just behind you, go behind you. Uh, the one, uh, again, I was very interested in what you said initially about Heidegger, that he gives time to nothing when yeah. others don't. 
But the interesting thing is that by giving time to nothing, in fact, he might really be kind of now connecting to the modern concepts of uh, particle physics, etc., which says that uh, nothing, in a sense, is at the bottom of everything, because nothing is not a nothingness, but it's a statistical nothingness, because there are particles coming in and come going out, and the total statistical uh, summation of that is zero, but, uh, but it is that which gives rise to matter and everything else. So that, you know, so that, in other words, that, you know, you might be now coming around in a circle because yeah. nothing I is now connected. I thought it was elephants all the way down. Is that not right? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know anything about it. Uh, well, uh, it, it's just the... Yeah, the no, no, I see what you mean. It connects up to the modern... Instead of having a, 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 a sort of a nicely materialist substrate, Right. Yes. Everything. Yeah. 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 So that it is, the, uh, uh, everything is transient, but in that transient, there is kind of a solidity within mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. transient, something like that. So I mean, he might be, you yeah, know, yeah. onto something really good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, where were we? There. Um, well, I have like, two two questions, and I'll try to make the one. The, the first one uh, would be in relation to uh, the beginning, Simon mentioned that uh, this quote from Aristotle say, who does uh, people who don't know, they teach, and so uh, The question would be for Nicholas in terms of like, um, obviously you can write, and you have been writing for a long time. The question would be why a novel now? I think you mentioned in, in some of your writings that you have written novels before, but you haven't published them. So this novel, I think the novel as well is a way of thinking, a series of things that you are developing through the novel. Uh, there are many things in there in terms of the question of hunting, the uh, question of the father. Um, so here comes my other question. The question of thinking, I was thinking that it could be like a kind of companion, for example, to Ellen uh, Shishuk's, her book about her mother, the, the dying mother. When I started reading this one, I was thinking like kind of, kind of symmetry. Uh, but this one, I was thinking more as a question of the, it's a question of the, the father. So the question: What is a father and the haunting of the father and the morning of the father? But as, um, as uh, sorry, your name is. Uh, <laughs> as you mentioned, uh, there is a question of the mother as well, but it could be seen. So. So my question here comes, okay, so the novel, why in particular the novel? Why is the necessity of writing, writing a novel if there will be more novels? And the question of the thinking of the father and the mother in terms of this novel. Or if it's a question of sexual difference or, um, I don't know, what's happening? Because I was thinking that the mother doesn't appear in the novel, not much. But now I'm thinking maybe appears in other ways. So the question of what is a father, what is a mother, you know, it's a very Derridian question as well. Sorry. Yeah, uh, thank you very much, Hugo, for those 12 questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know whether either of you want to say something. Um, I'll say something in a minute. I can try and have a stab at two or three of them. Um, Probably not very satisfying. I mean, I, I, 
I've always, for, for, for decades, I've, I've been writing what one might classify as fiction. And, and, um, some bits of it have been published as short fiction, but um, it, it's not, for me, a, a sort of radical new departure or, or anything very um, strange to um, to have done this in, in some ways, at least. Though, as you say, you know, I haven't published a novel before. It is my first novel to be published, so there, there is there is that. Um, maybe. You know, I, I think that there's a there's a great deal in in what Amber was saying. Um, it's, it's an extraordinarily um, complex question, which I'm not which I'm not sure I'm really uh, able to begin answering. But I think that the mother is um, far more unfathomably important than uh, I've perhaps yet had an opportunity to realise. Um, and, and I say that with, with a sense of trying to acknowledge this, uh, what I see as this strange logic of deferral, uh, which, which Freud is recognising in his preface to the, the second edition of the interpretation, um, and, and trying to think about perhaps uh, deferral deferred sense and deferred meaning in relation to the mother as well as to the father. Um, and clearly at, at, at some level or from some perspective, uh, the novel is an attempt to register and try to, I don't know whether open up is the right um, metaphor, but try to um, to acknowledge uh, the <coughs> the profound, perhaps unfathomable strangeness of uh, a complete um, stripping away of uh, phallocentric authority uh, of, 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 uh, of what the father is. Um, but. Clearly, at the same time, and, and though uh, you know, I don't think it's something which is um, explicitly there in the same way in quilt. Uh, the, the the text is trying to think about the the madness of the mother and and uh, a number of the sort of motifs of, of madness the mother. And law um, that I suppose I would I would go to you know Derrida's monolingualism and the other in order to try to, to talk about in more detail, but that that's probably not a probably not a very helpful answer. Well, that seems like exactly the right place to stop, isn't it? Not very helpful answer. <laughs> um, but we, what we can have instead is Nick will sign copies of Quilt View outside if you want to buy them. And we'll now thank him very much for coming here and joining with us on this launch. Thank you.